0: As I write this, 57 years after the Japanese surrender aboard USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, World War II is fading from our collective memories. Currently, about 1,000 veterans of World War II pass on every day. All too soon, World War II will be only museum exhibits, history books that are read only in colleges and universities, black and white footage of Nazi troops, and thundering victory-at-sea movies that run late at night on the cable channels. Some of us also have knickknacks that our parents kept to remind them of those days when they were young and the world was on fire, yet all too soon old medals and fading photographs become merely artifacts of a bygone age. The sons and daughters of the veterans understand that they are losing something important when their fathers pass on. Many have approached me, asking if I know of anyone who would help them write down their father's memories, while he is still able to voice them, capture them for the generations yet unborn. Alas, except for a few underfunded oral history programs, these personal memories usually go unrecorded. Diaries have long been out of fashion, and the elderly veterans and their children are usually not writers. Even those who could write down their memory of the experiences often get so caught up in the business of living through each day that they think no one cares about their past. Perhaps it has always been so. From the Trojan War to date, personal accounts by warriors are few and far between. Other than the occasional memoir by a famous general, often won out to polish his military reputation, the task of preserving the past is usually left to historians who weren't there, and to writers of fiction. Historians write of decisions of state, of fleets and armies, And the strategy of generals and great battles that brought victory or defeat. Fiction writers work on a smaller scale. They write about individuals. Only in fiction can the essence of the human experience of war be laid bare. Only from fiction can we learn what it might have been like to survive the crucible or to die in it. Only through fiction can we come to grips with the ultimate human challenge kill or be killed. Only through fiction. Can we prepare ourselves for the trial by fire when our turn comes? Hang a Rat By Dean Ng Chapter One They claim it would be impossible to strap a teenage test pilot into America's hottest climbing interceptor and get them both back intact. With the latest generation, they may be right. It was different in 1944, maybe because teenagers were different then, because their parents were. I reckon you had to be there. We learned a lot of things early, and some of them in strange ways. For example, you wouldn't think Adolf Hitler could be explained by a stamp collection. My dad managed it, though. You also wouldn't figure that a guy raised on a peach orchard near San Antonio, and his father and grandfather raised on that same farm, would grow up fluent in German not unless you got to wondering where central Texas towns like Fredericksburg and Luckenbach got their names. A lot of us, like the Rams and the Mahlers, fought Comanches to settle the region. Some kept up the lingo and correspondence with cousins in the old country. My school bud Fred Mahler and I sometimes got ribbed for it, and by the time we were in junior high, it could get mean. That's why, one day when I still had the cast on my leg, that would make me twelve, so the year was 1938. I asked Dad about something so embarrassing to him that it was never mentioned at home. If this guy Hitler is stampeding everybody out of Germany, why don't the people vote him out? He was torquing head bolts on a full-race Monasco in our shop, Ram Rensport near Luckenbach at the moment, and he took his time answering. Nobody rushed my dad, not if they wanted testing and tweaking by Jürgen Rahm, the best flight test mechanic in the air racing business. But if you waited, you got the best. Show you at home later, he said finally, then motioned toward a workbench, and I brought him the wiring harness. Even then, I had been his hangar rat so long, we didn't always need words. I miss him still. After supper, he had Mama bring a shoebox of letters from our Stuttgart kin to my room and with a glance made it clear that she and my little sis, Elkie, should leave us be. I cleared a half-built Comet contest model from my drafting table, and he began to sort through the box. He didn't open any envelopes, but set one apart. Nineteen-twenty, he said, and tapped the stamp, an orange Zen-Fenning-Luftpost, the German equivalent of a ten-cent cent airmail. He chose another, tapped the stamp's, one being an orange mark. Two years later, he said, Wow, thirty bucks, I said. I figured that meant they were all getting rich over there. Wait, he said, and laid out another envelope. 1923 was his only comment. The stamp was green, labeled 400 marks, but overprinted 100,000 marks. A hundred thousand bucks? I didn't quite believe it until he showed me a pink five millionen and then a green fifty millionen. I think they went up to zen milliard or so eventually, he said. Ten billion? With a B? Dollars? To send a letter? I was flabbergasted. Those letters were a few years older than I was. Dad wasn't smiling as he carefully replaced the letters in the kid's box. They say longshoremen's wages in Hamburg were about twenty billion a day. He said slowly. Men carried the cash home in wheelbarrows, and the government couldn't afford to pay its own printing office. Imagine that happening here, Kurt. The whole country in chaos. Lieber God. Can you see why people were so desperate they'd vote for anybody who could lead them out of such a nightmare? Did he? Mr. Hitler, I mean? Dad nodded. His methods are vicious but there's a recent Deutsche Flugpost-Zenmark stamp somewhere in here. No more chaos in Germany today. No more freedom, either. They've exchanged nightmares. Too many people will forgive him anything for giving them confidence again in their money, and some of his top people are as slick as Roscoe Turner. And just as good on the stick, he added. I got it. Turner was a fine race pilot, but mostly he knew how to hog friendly headlines. And so... Now half the good people in Germany believe Hitler is the greatest genius in history, in spite of all the Sturm und Drang, and the rest are scattering like pigeons at the green flag because Herr Hitler thinks he's Superman. I had to smile. You could hide an air racer in a two-car garage, but they had bodacious engines. And when the green flag dropped, and a half-dozen Monascos, Rangers, and Wright Whirlwinds cranked on the horsepower for a race, you could hear their thunder ten miles away. And that's not just tall Texas talk. And so I understood, vaguely, what was coming when air racing was shelved after 1939. My heroes were now designing and testing military planes, and new engines were designed for reliability. Dad didn't have much machining work for Mr. Mahler. The golden era of air racers was dead. Between 39 and 41, Dad and I built a handsome baby bullet, a twitchy little bugger with responses quick as a wink, the nearest thing you could get to a race plane, from plans. We painted it my school colors, red and white. After I soloed in a piper, he taught me to fly the babe. And after that, whenever Dad tweaked someone's two-holer, more than one seat, I got in some stick time with him. Then he put away his tools and tried to work the farm's orchard with one gimpy teenager. My left leg never grew much after that fall from a ladder, so the only letter I earned on the Fredericksburg Billies was for the javelin. But I made Dad proud in school, flew the babe now and then, got a stiff neck watching Army planes from nearby San Antonio airfields. I was a happy kid. The war was half a world away, and my Dad was the best man I ever met. And our time together was running out. Pearl Harbor changed everything. Almost everyone in air racing put old contacts to use, building or flying military aircraft. Fred Mahler and I learned not to use German words at school. Dad applied as a civilian, ferrying Lend-Lease Bell P-39s to the Russians by the Alaska route, even before he realized how good the pay would be. The idea was, this forty-year-old could do his part and still spend some time at home. For several months it worked fine, but there was lots of bad weather in Alaska's interior, and some very large rocks sticking up into it, and very few long airstrips. One day they'll find which of those rocks Dad's P-39 hit. The only reason I didn't go nuts then was that, with Mama and Elkie to think about, I couldn't afford the luxury. I graduated at sixteen, fully licensed, with a flight log to prove I could fly everything from the babe to a stagger wing beach with retract gear. That was the capper, I reckon.